0: This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 76. Some thoughts on the story so far. Ever since Episode 2, this podcast has been dedicated almost completely to the story of the Mahabharata as it is written in the Critical Edition and the Ganguli Translation. Of course, I've always commented freely on the particular subjects that came up, but I've not had the opportunity to explore some more general ideas and questions that I've had about this enigmatic treasury of ancient wisdom. Since around the Book of the Forest, I've been looking for a nice stopping point to do something like this, but the story really has a way of propelling you forward. Even when things get really boring or pedantic, it only makes you want to press on harder to get to the more interesting stuff. I thought of doing this right before the war started, but then, we wanted to get to the Gita. And after that, we wanted to get to the war. So really, there's no good stopping place. Taking a moment in the midst of the war is perhaps the best time to stop. Frankly, the colossal violence is difficult for me to relate, so it's nice to take a break from it. The pace and the scale of the killing has been relentless. For most of the people, death comes all too easily as hundreds of thousands are killed without barely a mention. Meanwhile, certain characters just won't die soon enough. It makes me really start to wish it were over already. But, as painful as all this can be at times, it is clear that Vyasa is trying to make a strong impression on us how violent and horrible the war really was. He makes sure that no one listening carefully to this story can come through and still harbor delusions about the glory and nobility of total war. Well then, we might as well start on the subject of war. The more we go through the experience of Kurukshetra, the more strongly I feel the parallels between this war and the wars of the 20th century. As the battle grinds on, there's a real sense of total war between the combatants. All the old niceties are dropping to the wayside, as nuclear-like weapons are used against defenseless masses of people. Even the good guys must resort to subterfuge and must sacrifice their own sons in order to win. The run-up to the war was very reminiscent of the start of World War I, in the sense that both sides firmly believed that war was the only and inevitable solution to their problems. In addition, Diodona's fanatical drive for total victory or total defeat, and his complete disregard for the well-being of his men, bears a striking resemblance to Adolf Hitler. These strange parallels might be more than mere coincidence, however. But to see that, we should first take a step back to the beginning of the book and its cosmological setting. The foundation myth for the Mahabharata begins with the story of the creation of the Amrit and the war that ensued. The way it is told in the book of the beginning is that the gods held a meeting at Mount Meru so they could discuss how they might get their hands on some Amrit, the elixir of immortality. The god Narayan, or Vishnu, explained to them that they needed to churn the ocean with the help of the demonic Asuras, and together they would create the Amrit, like butter in a churn. So the gods used the king of snakes as a rope, and Mount Mandana as the churn. We're not told what promises or representations were made to the Asuras. We only know that they helped out expecting to get some of that Amrit. Altogether, the gods and demons yanked on the snake and churned the ocean. As they tugged, The friction made the snake belch forth fire and smoke, which roasted the creatures of the earth. But we're talking about gods here, so Indra simply conjured a rainstorm and put out the fires. The resulting flood also washed the burnt animal guts into the ocean. And that, plus the cooked herbs and molten gold, proved to be the secret ingredient. The ocean turned to milk, and the milk congealed into Amrit. Incidentally, it also produced the sun, the moon, the goddess Sri, Liquor, a white horse, and the Kaustubag jewel that adorns Vishnu. The Amrit arrived in a gourd, and the Asuras grabbed it. That trickster Vishnu then turned into a beautiful demoness, and she was offered the first drink. He then handed it over to the gods. Only one Asura ever got a drink of the Amrit. It was the demon named Rahu, and he just got it into his mouth, but then Vishnu cut off his head. His head flew up into the sky, where it still exists, in Indian astrology, occasionally eating up the sun and moon during solar eclipses. The rest of the Asuras never got to drink the elixir, and a great war broke out. After much back and forth, the gods were eventually victorious. This story links into the Mahabharata by what happens next. We are told that these defeated Asuras took a great interest in the earth, and they began incarnating as humans in vast numbers. The worst of them were born as kings and kshatriyas, and they oppressed all the people. Finally, Mother Earth could herself no longer bear the burden of their oppression, so she petitioned Brahma to help her. Brahma's solution was to have all the gods also incarnate as humans, so they may fight fire with fire. To top it off, Vishnu agreed to also be born on Earth, to save us from these evil men and to herald the new Kali Yuga. And thus we get to the interesting little essay called The Partial Incarnations. In this section, well before the stories begun, we are given a peek behind the scenes and see who each of these characters really were, not their mortal names and characteristics, but the name and character of the very soul they had incarnated from. The Mahabharata is not some petty squabble among Bronze Age chieftains. Rather, it is the continuation of the cosmic war for immortality. At this stage in the epic, the story is presented mostly as a dialogue between Janamejaya. Arjun's great grandson, and Vaisampaina, who was Vyasa's disciple. Janamajaya wanted to know specifically who had incarnated as whom in the story. At the time, I glossed over it because I hadn't introduced any of these characters yet. At this point in the story, however, the information is much more interesting. For instance, Drona was the soul of Brihaspati incarnate. Ashvataman was born from the qualities of Shiva, specifically death, lust, and fury. Shakuni, was the reincarnation of Dvapur, the trickster figure we met as one of the two tormentors of Nala and Damayanti. Kali and Dvapur are also the names of the two worst Yugas. In this version, Duryodhana is said to be the incarnation of Kali. I think this refers to the Kali in the Kali Yuga, and the mean guy in the story of Nala. This is my guess because other than these two references, the goddess Kali is never mentioned by that name. The author goes on to say that Duryodhana was a creature of discord, hated by all the world, and it was he who caused the great massacre that was the war of Kurukshetra. The rest of his brothers were all just reincarnated Rakshasas. As for the Pandavas, there is much confusion about their origins. We know from the story that their fathers were gods, Dharma, Vayu, Indra, and the Ashvins, but one's parentage is not one's soul. Thus, when Vyasa is trying to justify the marriages of five men to one Draupadi, He explains to King Drupad that in actuality, all five brothers had the one soul of Indra. That was called the Tale of the Five Indras. But here, in the partial incarnations, we're told that they both have the father and the soul of each of their respective gods. Frankly, I do not see how this can be reconciled without some metaphysical sleight of hand, but if you have any suggestions, please send them my way. Since I believe we have to choose, I tend to accept the Five Indras version, because it is more vital to the story. Without it, Vyasa had no case for justifying the marriage of five men to one woman. Moving on, Abhimanyu was Soma incarnate, and Dristudyumna was Agni, the fire god. Sikandin was just a rakshasa. Another contradiction is that Arjuna is also the incarnation of Nara, the divine proto-rishi and companion to Narayan Krishna. The story of the partial incarnations also endorses the legend of Krishna's 16,000 wives and says they're all Apsaras incarnate. The goddess Shri, born alongside the Amrit, became Draupadi. Since this epic is so firmly rooted into the legend of the Amrit, I think the story of its creation deserves a closer look. To produce the Amrit, the gods and Asuras must combine their powers to churn a mountain. The image of a mountain with its peak moving in a circular motion is too strongly reminiscent of the precession of the equinoxes to be an accident. In case you're not familiar with the precession, it is also known in astrology as the great year. You may have heard that we live at the dawn of the age of Aquarius. Well, that is what they're referring to. The precession is an apparent wobble in the tilt of the Earth's axis of rotation. One of the observational effects of this is that the sunrise on the spring equinox occurs in a new constellation every 2160 years. Thus, at the time of Jesus, the sun rose in the constellation of Pisces, and only in recent decades has it begun to move into the constellation of Aquarius. Another effect of this 26,000-year great cycle is the slow change in what appears to be the pole star. The star that we call the North Star today will not always be the center of the sky's rotation, In fact, the center point of the northern sky slowly traces a circle in the sky, moving in the opposite direction to the Earth's rotation. I hope I am explaining this phenomenon clearly. If not, please look it up online. There are lots of good diagrams there. But the thing that ties the precession with the story of the Amrit is this image of a churning mountain. If you were to stand to the south of a northern mountain and were to watch it night after night for 26,000 years, you would see that mountain trace a circle in the sky as if it were being churned. Thus, the image of the gods and asuras using their combined powers to churn the oceans sounds like a mythic recollection of the precessional phenomenon. The subject of the precession was also brought to mind when we got to the Markandeya stories in the Book of the Forest. In one of those sessions, episode 38, the sage describes the yuga cycle, and in his calculation, the four yugas combined add up to 13,000 years precisely one half of uh, precisely one half of a precessional cycle at the time I chalked it up to coincidence but now I'm not so sure in the 19th century the Swami Sri Yukteswar Giri wrote a little book in which he correlated the yukas precisely with the 26,000 year precession cycle his essay on the subject in a book called the holy science was quite short but it's packed with ideas For one, he posits that the solar system is orbiting the center of the galaxy, something astronomers did not observe until 50 years later. Sri also stated that the Sun has a binary twin, and the two stars orbit each other. While this has not yet been observed by astronomers, there is evidence for it, and it certainly has not been disproven. One of the best clues to the existence of a binary twin to the Sun is the so-called precessional wobble. Modern astronomers typically explain the precession as a wobble in the Earth's rotation, but it could just as well be explained by a 26,000 year journey made by the whole solar system around another star. According to Sri Yukteswar, this orbital journey takes our solar system closer and then farther away from the center of the galaxy. The galactic center is also the source of what he calls dharma. When our solar system is furthest away from the galactic center, dharma is weak in the world, and we call that the Kali Yuga. Thus, Markandeya's calculations described our journey away from the galactic center tracing the decline in dharma from the golden age of the Krita Yuga down to the end of the Kali Yuga, which was far off in his future, but deep in our past. What Markandeya did not address is what he expected would happen when we transitioned from the end of the Kali Yuga back to the new golden age. The assumption seems to have been that some sort of direct leap back into the golden age would occur. Taking the motions of astronomy as a guide, and perhaps his own intuitive powers, Sri accounted for the journey back from Kali-yuga as a motion in the opposite direction. Thus, the Kali-yuga began with the death of Krishna and ran for 1,200 years. This brought us to the year AD 500. At that point, the solar system was at its furthest from the center and Dharma was at its weakest. Then we resumed our return journey to the center and a new ascending Kali-yuga began. From there, Dharma slowly retrenched itself on earth until the 20th century when we finally re-entered the Dvapar Yuga. Thus, we are currently living in the ascending Dvapar Yuga, and we could look forward to things getting better, more dharma, as we move to the future. I think this helps to explain the overriding sense of decline that we see in the epic and many other ancient texts, as opposed to our own more modern-day sense of progress and optimism. Just as I was pondering Markandeya and Sri Yukteswar, a new book came out on this very subject. The book is called The Yugas by Joseph Selby, And in it, he develops a system and uses it to explain the arc of world history. The story of decline and subsequent recovery helps explain a lot about ancient history. For instance, when it comes to Bronze Age building techniques, older is almost always better. The oldest pyramids were the best built, and the same goes for other parts of the ancient world. The Indus Valley cities seem to have been at their best when they were just built, and subsequent layers show a relentless decline. One of the mysteries that this system of analysis might resolve is the question of magic. Why is it that the further back in time you go, the more the people of the time believed in the reality and ubiquity of magic? This may be explained if we can better understand what this force of dharma really is. What if dharma is much more than just the subtle ordering of society? What if this is something more like the force, as described in Star Wars movies? Is it possible that in our recent history, Dharma has been so weak that we cease to believe in its existence? Perhaps in the Kali Yuga, it was so weak that only the most ardent practitioners were able to utilize it. Maybe all the supernatural weapons and creatures of the Mahabharata will again become apparent as Dharma continues to be restored to the world. Just because we've never seen an archer enchant an arrow capable of blowing up a city, does it mean that it cannot be done? Maybe as the energy for doing these things was lost, we forgot how to manipulate it, and even quit believing it existed. Now that the energy is once again returning to the world, all we need to do is start making use of it again. This is where the timing of the Mahabharata and Sri Yukteswar's Yuga calculations get interesting. You see, today, we are living at the dawn of the Dvapar Yuga, and we have only recently escaped the influence of the Kali Yuga. The Mahabharata takes place at almost the exact same time in the descending Dvapar Yuga. They were living in the twilight of the Dvapar Age and were about to enter the darkness of the Kali Yuga. Thus there is a very real relationship between the fanaticism and violence of the 20th century and the events of the Mahabharata. The difference is that we can expect a happy ending after all the wars, while our heroes only expected more and more decline into darkness. So maybe Arjun's nuclear-tipped arrows and flying chariots are not fantastical imaginings as we commonly assume. Maybe there was just a lot more magic in the world at that time. And if there was that much magic available at the end of the descending Dvapar Yuga, perhaps magic is available for us today if we just tried to make use of it. As we all know from traditions, magic is powered by thought and intention. So clearly, as long as we do not believe in magic, we certainly are not going to be able to use it. On the other hand, It is probably a good thing that people do not know how to conjure a nuclear-tipped arrow, because humanity today is just not enlightened enough to be trusted with such power. This leads me to my next question, which is the precise nature of the breakdown that caused the Mahabharata war in the first place. It does seem apparent that it was a danger and a nuisance to have all these barbarians running around with explosive arrows. So perhaps part of Krishna's mission was to rid the world of these dangerous elements, because Dharma was too weak to keep them in line anymore. But there's one other theme that we see glaringly in the epic, but is rarely commented on. This is the pervasive confusion among the castes. Many characters simply do not behave according to the caste they were born into. As I mentioned last episode, the most obvious examples are the fighting Brahmins, Kripa, Drona, and Ashvataman. This exception to the priestly rule was so blatant that even one of the characters, Yumna, complained about it. But fighting Brahmins are just the beginning of the problem. We also have some very unchivalric kshatriyas. We are told that it's okay for a kshatriya to be proud and to be a fighter, but they should also be generous and fair-minded. Duryodhana's father make for very poor kshatriyas, and it is really their character that makes them unworthy of being king, not their disabilities or birth order. Yudhishthira seems to reflect the mere opposite of the problem, as even his brothers sometimes complain, the eldest Pandava has a temperament more fit for a brahmin than a kshatriya. And Karno, of course, is the best example of a character born to the wrong caste. He's a sutta who acts like a kshatriya. One could strongly argue that all of the problems that led to the war stemmed from this confusion of caste identities. To modernize, the caste system seems fatally flawed due to this problem. How can the random accident of birth determine irrevocably one's position in life? From my perspective, I cannot see how the system could have ever worked fairly but the author and his characters all assume that this is the only way society could function. In fact, their prediction for the coming Kali Yuga was that the castes would no longer be respected and all of society would break down as a result. The Mahabharata tends to play out according to this prediction because the characters do not act according to their caste, and all hell breaks out as a result. But then, how did the system ever work out well? It seems to me that there are two possibilities. The first is that somehow, in ancient times, the children born to a Vaishya, for instance, were just like their parents and had a bourgeois sensibility. So perhaps at that time everyone was born to the appropriate caste for their own nature. The alternate explanation is that at one time caste was not inherited from one's parents. In this case, your personal affinities marked you out for one caste or another. Unfortunately, the Mahabharata never tries to explore these possibilities, so it seems we're left guessing. Its only explanation for what went wrong was that demons had incarnated as kshatriyas, and the Kali Yuga was fast approaching. The overriding sense that we get from ancient literature is that the people were living in a time of decline and dissolution. The people all believed that the golden age was behind them, and things were only going to get worse. Our modern mindset is just the opposite. We assume that our future is destined to grow in knowledge and technology, even despite occasional setbacks. We tend to read this back into the past and assume that the ancients must have been more primitive than the people who came later. If Markandeya and Sri Yukteswar's calculations of the yugas are correct, then perhaps we were both right. The ancients lived in a period of decline, while we live in the brink of a new golden age. Let's all hope this is true. It makes me feel better already. Before I wrap up this little digression, there is one other observation I have to make about this story. The marriage of five brothers to Draupadi is a real anomaly in Hindu literature. Even Vyasa is forced to admit that there's no precedent in history or scripture to justify it. The only way he can explain it is by first saying it's okay because he said it's okay and secondly he points to the story of the five Indras to make the case that they may be five men but they share a single soul, that of Indra. I've pondered this and watched for clues and I've only come up with one hypothesis which is that the five brothers were a literary device, and they were originally a single person. The strongest clue we get from the story is the consistent association of the various Pandavas with parts of the body. Yudhishthira clearly represents the head, while Bhima is the right arm and the stomach. For instance, when Bhima gets into a war with Kubera in the Himalaya, Yudhishthira feels a pain in his right arm that tells him his brother's in trouble. Arjun is often called the left handed archer. He's also associated with the sex organs. When the brothers go into hiding, it's Arjun who must conceal his virility by pretending to be a eunuch. Arjun is also the only progenitor of the five brothers. As the possessor of their collective penis, he's the one who begets the son who begets the heirs of the dynasty. Spoiler alert, none of the other Pandavas sons survived to take the throne or bear offspring. Finally, the twins represent the legs. Good looking, useful, but otherwise unremarkable. Thus, Is it possible that in some earlier version of the epic there was only one Pandava, perhaps named Arjun, who was as wise as Yudhishthira, as strong as Bhima, as potent as Arjun, and as good-looking as the twins? So then, why would Vyasa feel the need to split this one hero into five pieces? My guess is that it had to do with the literary styles available to him at the time. If you pay close attention to the style of storytelling in the epic, you'll notice that it concerns itself with what people did and what they said. Inner thoughts are rarely expressed, and inner conflict is never mentioned. Thus, we might guess that part of Dhritarashtra's motivation is driven by an inner conflict over what he knows to be right and his own resentments. But as long as he's not honest enough to express this inner thought, we will never know it. If the five Pandavas were compressed into a single character, all of this one character's inner conflicts would have been hidden from us. The Yudhishthira part of him would be inclined towards humility and righteousness, but the Bhima part of him would want revenge and would require restraint. How does one relate this inner conflict if you're constrained to action and dialogue? The solution is ingenious. Split that complex character into five parts and let them work out the psychological drama amongst themselves. Vyasa could have easily resolved the problem of Draupadi's marriage in several other ways. He could have just had her marry Arjun, but perhaps he left that one conundrum there on purpose as a reminder of this first Pandava, the proto-Arjun. Well, that's all for now. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. It feels good to get all this off my chest. Thanks for listening.